Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to uh, look at the first 18 verses of chapter 10. We're, we're moving along here in this book. And so uh, uh, this, uh, this uh, I entitled this one, Christ the Better Sacrifice. Better is a term that runs throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, uh, the actual Greek word that is used literally translates better when it talks about Christ. Generally, you'll find most guys in their commentaries, they put perfect uh, more complete or something. They they want to use a different word than better, but the word is better. <laughs> it's just he's the point is Christ is better. That's the uh, that's the that's the the real point that is being made throughout this book. So I kind of adapted that and said we'll we'll call it that. Um, just kind of as as somewhat of a of a bit of uh, just a reminder. We're we're talking to a, a book that was written to a to a group of, a group of, of, uh, of uh, Hebrew Christians. Uh, within their mix, there are people who are kind of floating around Christianity. They, may, they haven't really made a commitment to it. Uh, they're being pulled. All of them are being pulled by their, uh, by their, uh, um, uh, their Jewish relatives. And, uh, and, the, and their, their whole history, of course, is the Levitical system. I mean, their whole life has been built on the Levitical system, and there's been a major change. And uh, some of them are, are apparently having some difficulty uh, grappling with that. And as a result, uh, uh, there's a, a tendency to keep one foot in the synagogue and one foot in the church for some. And uh, there are some that are just kind of listening, but they haven't really made any kind of a commitment and then there, there are the solid ones uh, that are solidly convinced. And, and so to this group, this book is written, which is why we have a number of warning passages through it, which we're about to come to one after next week in chapter 10, probably one of the most major of the warning passages. But right now, he's continuing with, with his teaching on, on Christ's sacrifice. In, in chapter 9... Excuse me. In chapter nine, uh, he kind of showed the essentiality of Christ's sacrifice. That was the the theme there. It was essential. It had to happen. Uh, they couldn't go on under the system they were because that couldn't remove sin. It couldn't. It couldn't. Uh, it couldn't clear the conscience. Uh, chapter nine brought that up. It could not clear the guilt uh, that we that we uh, that we uh, uh, that we. That we uh, uh, that we hold, uh, whereas in Christ that guilt was 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 eliminated. It was taken away. We were freed from that. So in this chapter, he, he kind of covers the same material, but he covers it from a little different perspective. Here he's he's talking about something of the character of Christ's sacrifice, and uh, uh, that might be the way to understand it. Um, I think here I said uh, the nature of Christ's sacrifice. So this is just a slightly different view on kind of the same material. Uh, but uh, he adds in some other things. Some familiar passages are going to be brought in. Once again, Psalms 101, Psalms 40, uh, not Psalms 110, Psalms 40, and and uh, Jeremiah 31. Those, those are going to be, pri- those are just the big passages that, uh, that go throughout this book to, 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 uh, to, they have an unhappy customer next door, <laughs> but at, at any rate, uh, they, 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 they that that uh, that he uses to illustrate 
the necessity of Christ's sacrifice and, and the coming of the new covenant. So we're going to be looking at the, the high priest of the new covenant and, uh, and how that covenant, uh, 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 kind of its nature, its character, how it works as we come, as we come to the text this morning in 1 through 18. So um, any prayer requests this morning? We have one, our youngest son, Mark, the guy that should be in the sound booth today, isn't because he helped his older brother move yesterday and he hurt his back. So uh, might be praying for him that he's he's in bed on a heating pad right at the moment. So so anyway, at any rate. Uh, That's all my son, Stephen, he's on his way from my place to uh, Christ it's a 13-hour drive, and he's been on the road for five and a half hours. Oh. But that, you know, yeah, yeah, that's a long, day. 13 hours is a long trip. That's a long trip. I would I'd make that in three days but <laughs> at this point. And he's pulling a trailer with a Jeep on it. I'd made it in four days. <laughs> and what's your son's Mark. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, most everybody in here kind of think knows him, but anyway. Okay. Hey, Warren, can I ask you to open this this morning? Heavenly Father, we just come to you humbly, you know, looking at your word and, and trying to apply that word to our lives. We know that you are in control of all that's going on, but you wish for us is to live quiet and peaceful lives. We have people around this world now that are Christians and on your side who aren't living that kind of a life. We do ask that you bless them, especially with your spirit, and that you keep them uh, in the palm of your hands and shelter them from the things that could be happening. We do ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to look begin first looking at the first four verses, uh, which I entitled the shadow the shadows that point to Christ. This is verse ten, chapter verse one. For since the law has but a sh- uh, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the the true form of these realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices that the, that are continual that are continually offered every year, made perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been clean, would no longer have a consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So here's the first thing he talks about. He he talks about the fact that what he is saying here is he's, he's, he's contrasting uh, which is a major feature that's going to run through this verse. It's a major feature that has run through the entire book, but it specific, specifically in the first 18 verses of chapter 10, he's going, to, he's going to have these contrasts, and he's contrasting here the law or the Old Testament, is what he's saying. He's saying the Old Testament law, specifically uh, the Mosaic law, uh, the Mosaic covenant, uh, but... In fact, the whole of the Old Testament was a shadow pointing to the coming Messiah. That's, that's what he's telling us here. He's telling us they were, they were a shadow of the good things to come. Uh, the word shadow here is a reference 
it, it, it's a reference that, that would mean something like this, a pale resemblance or shadow of the, in contrast to the sharp reality of the real thing. That's, that's, that's the idea of this word here. In other words, the Old Testament, co- the, the Old Covenant, the, the Mosaic Law, was a pale resemblance of what was to come. And it pointed to it. That's, that's, that's what it's saying here. That's, that's the idea here. The, the shadow is an indicator. It says the shadow was an indicator of the good things to come. Back in verse 11 of chapter 9, he said, But when Christ appears as high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered to once and for all the holy place, by means of, not by the means of uh, uh, the blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That's what he's talking about here, eternal redemption. Those are the good things to come. Those are the true form, the true realities. Uh, some some uh, text take this true realities and they translate it as image, the true image. The actual thing itself is the, is the idea uh, that's being, ex, uh, being, ex, uh, being seen here. The idea might be something like this. The glory of heaven casts a shadow, which is the Old Testament law on the earth. That's kind of the idea that's being being expressed in this 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 uh, this this idea here. And and this the sh- the, the shadow it says was unable to make perfect those who draw near. Perfect is a word that simply means to bring to completion. Uh, that's 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 the idea. It, uh, it it brings something to its intended end. And what it is saying here is the Old Testament mosaic system could not bring the believer to God's intended end. That's what it's saying. It's saying it couldn't do that. It was not possible for the shadow to get you there. It could point you, it could guide you, it could direct you, but it didn't get you there. Note in, note in, in, in 9.9 and 9.14, the contrast. In 9.9 he says, speaking of the Old Testament covenant, he says, it couldn't clear the conscience. And then in 14, when he's talking about the new, the new covenant, he says it did clear the conscience. That's, that's the idea here. It removed the sense of guilt. That's the idea. So you might ask, well, then what did the Old Testament do? What was it all about? Well, I, th- I think there's three things we can point to. One, it pointed to the salvation to come. The, the whole Old Testament points to Christ. That's the point of it. It was to show the Hebrews their coming Messiah. It talks about him all the way through it. There's numerous messianic passages and promises about the time of the Messiah. Unfortunately, by the time Messiah came, Judaism had been reduced to nothing more than a work system. And he didn't fit into their plan. That's, that's ultimately what happened. Uh, but look at First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what 
person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the predicted the predicted the predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revel, revel it was reverent. Uh, no, I can't even say it. Relevant. Thank you. It was relevant to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to come. In other words, they pointed, the Old Testament pointed us to Christ. That was the point. Uh, They were to see the coming Messiah in those scriptures. Secondly, the sacrifice system of the Old Testament, it had a blatant reminder. It reminded the cost of sin, death. That's what it pointed to. The whole system was surrounded by death. I did a little bit of research, and I don't know if this is true or not, but some, some historians and biblical historians believe that on the Day of Atonement, at, at a certain time in, in Israel's history, the slaughter of the lambs was 1.2 million. 1.2 million in a day. Josephus said... I forgot exactly how he said it, but basically he said it was a bloodbath. Uh, one commentator, one, there's one um, ancient historian that wrote that the blood ran knee deep. It's, it's incredible when you think about that. It showed the cost of sin, death. That was, that was the point. That was one of the points. And then finally, it provided a kapora, a covering for sin. While it couldn't bring one into the presence of God, it could keep them in a covenant relationship with God. Looking that day, they could come into his presence. So those are the, those are the three major, oh, there's more, but those are the three major items of, of the Old Testament. He goes on in, 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 in verses 2 and 3, and he basically asks a rhetorical question. He says, otherwise... Would they have not ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been clean, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. And of course, the answer is, if in fact these these sacrifices were sufficient to cleanse the conscience of sin, 9.14, then they would have ceased. Well, the answer is yes. They wouldn't have been necessary. They were necessary because they couldn't. So it had to continue year after year. It was a continual, a repetitive, uh, a repetitive kind of idea. They didn't remove sin and its guilt. It was only a temporary covering. Verse, verse, uh, uh, verse three goes on to say, goes on to say about this. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. What we just said, it reminded us of sin and the cost of sin, uh, as one of the one of the ideas here. He says. If they were complete, the consciousness would have been cleared. Conscious, conscious uh, here is uh, the same word that's used in 9.9 and 10.22 and in um, uh, 13.18. and carries the same meanings. Man's innate awareness of wrong in his life and uh, the accompanying guilt. Uh, one commentator said, it's the equivalent to pain in the body. It's the, it's the warning system for the soul. Just like pain is the warning system for the body. That's, that's the idea here. Um, 
And you can look at Romans chapters 5 through 6 and then contrast them with 8.1. It talks about the whole battle of the conscience in, five, in, in 6 through 7. And then in 8, he says, but there is no condemnation in Christ. That's, 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 that's the idea here. So there was no longer now a, a need to repeat the sacrifices to cover uh, uh, because in Christ we have been freed uh, by the continual forgiveness by God's grace through the death of Christ. Proverbs, Proverbs 28, 28 verse 13. Whoever cancels his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's, that's, that's the idea here. That's the idea here. First John chapter 1, verse 8 says, if you, if you say you have no sin, you deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But then he goes on in verse 9 and says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you say you have no sin, you make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So simply, simply put, we're all sinners saved by grace. That's, that's the idea here. And that's what he's saying. If, if the Old Testament system could clear the conscience, if it could do away with sin, it would have ended the first time they did it. Uh, but it couldn't. It could not. And then verse 4 says, verse 4 goes on to say, just to make it complete, says, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. And here he's just saying, that's not possible. Uh, the sacrifice of an animal could cover the sin, but it couldn't take it away. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, able to do that. Uh, it, it says this was only an external covering. In nine uh, thirteen to fourteen, he, he wrote. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of his flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the idea here. They, they weren't able to do that. They were not complete. Uh, they were only a temporary to cover it. Incidentally, Romans 10.4 tells us, Christ became the end of the law. He is the end of the law. Christ's sacrifice ended the Old Testament system and the Levitical priesthood. Yes, it continued on for another 40 years. There's always overlap. But then it had a very dramatic close when Titus Epiphany sacked Rome. Or sacked Rome. Sacked sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Secondly... The shadows were replaced by the reality of Christ. Verse 5, verse 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired or have taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
and by that we uh, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. So here he says, consequently, as a result of New American Standard says, therefore, um, he says, therefore, based on the fact, based on the fact of what we said above that that bulls and goats and heifers and all this stuff could not cleanse the conscience, could not save us, could not repair the the sin-damaged soul. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, and what he does here is he quotes from Psalms 46.8. Now, 40, 40 is a psalm written by David, in which David applies to himself. The author of Hebrews, an inspired writer, says he put it in the words of Christ. He put it in the mouth of Christ, excuse me. That's what he's doing here. He's changed the pronoun from David to Christ. That's, that's what he's doing in this text. He's basically taking Psalms 40, and what he is telling us is, is that Psalms 40 is messianic. It's speaking of Christ. That's, that's what it's speaking of here. Uh, and so we, we accept that because... A New Testament-inspired writer told us to. That ultimately is the is the is the answer to that. Uh, but he's saying he's saying consequently, as a result of the fact that animal sacrifices could not do away with sin, verse five, Christ came into the world, and it, that's just a Hebrew euphemism for Christ was born. That's we say that. Oh, the new baby just came into the world. You know, that's that's what that means. He was born. And then he quotes from Psalms 6, uh, 40, 6 through 8. And the author, off, author applies these words to Christ. Uh, sanctified, uh, or excuse me, sacrifice and offerings thou hast not desired. Now, he, he, de- he delineates the, 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 the items here. He, he says, uh, um, he said, burnt offerings for sin, you've taken no pleasure. And he goes on down later on, uh, verses 8 through 10 are basically a commentary on on Psalms 40. And he lists basically the major elements of the sacrifice of the Mosaic law. That's, that's what he's doing here, how the, polit- the uh, Levitical priesthood operated. And he's basically using that to say the whole of that, the whole of that system, the whole of that system is not what you desired. That's, that's what he's saying. Now, we need to make a little bit of a run backwards into theological history here because um, we need to understand a couple of things about sacrifices. The first sacrifice that we find in Scripture is in Genesis 3. At the expulsion of Adam and Eve after their sin from the Garden of Eden, God took an animal and made a kapora, a covering, for Adam and Eve. He slaughtered an animal and used animal skins. Incidentally, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the picture is the gates of Eden with two angels standing there with flaming sword with a bloody sacrifice between them. Uh, the mercy seat. That, that's the picture. Now, in the next chapter, the two offspring after their fall, Cain and Abel, decide to bring offerings to God. Now, there's nothing that says they were required to. We don't have a lot of fill in here. All we know is that they did. Cain brought a grain offering. 
Abel brought a, he was a farmer. Cain was a farmer, so he brought the work of his hand. Cain, our Abel, on the other hand, was a sheep herder. So he brought a bloody animal sacrifice. God accepted Abel's. He rejected Cain's. Now, there's all kinds of theological implications about that. Uh, You can take it that Cain was under a work system, whereas Abel was under a blood system, which I kind of buy. But, But there is one thing that Hebrews is going to tell us about Abel's offering that's significant to us in our service and how you got saved. And incidentally, what brings salvation to Old Testament believers? One chapter over. Chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God declared him righteous. That's called justification, incidentally. God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Salvation comes through faith. Why was Abel acceptable? Because he brought his sacrifice in faith. Why are we acceptable? Because we accepted the sacrifice of Jesus by faith. It's always been that way since the dawn of creation till now. That's that's what this is saying here. He's making it very clear. The sacrifices themselves, yes, played an important role. They they pictured a number of things. They pictured the sacrifice of Christ. They pictured death. They pictured what it took to cleanse sin-stained consciences. But they were not the primary focus faith was. And so he says here, he says he's not totally satisfied. He's not satisfied with just the offerings. In other words, the rote going through of a ritual doesn't save you. Amos chapter 5. Chapter 4 first. Uh, Amos chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is leavened. Notice that these are all unacceptable sacrifices. And and proclaim free will. Offer pub, uh, um, offerings. Uh, publish them. Uh, for so your love, uh, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Those are all unacceptable sacrifices, incidentally. But leaven's not acceptable, uh, and making a big to do about how much you're you're giving is not acceptable. Those are not those are not acceptable. Those are for the praise of men. And then in verse five, he or in chapter five, verse verses twenty one and twenty through twenty five, he says this: I hate. This is God speaking. I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of, the, of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs uh, to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but... but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Do, 
Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? He condemns them and tells them they're not acceptable sacrifices. They weren't accompanied by faith. That's the issue here. But then, just to make a little bit of a note here, uh, verse 25 says, ask the rhetorical question, did they make sacrifices in the wilderness? What's the answer? The answer is yes, they did. Exodus 24, 4 through 6, and Numbers 7, uh, chapter 7 and 19. Now, Dr. Feinberg, you guys all know who Dr. Feinberg is? You've heard of him? Uh, Dr. Feinberg is uh, probably one of the eminent uh, professors um, in Old Testament, um, and particularly in Hebrew. And uh, he was uh, Professor Emeritus at Talbot Theological Seminary. Uh, and uh, he's now passed, but... Uh, uh, John MacArthur tells a story of Dr. Feinberg sitting behind him writing uh, the critique. And he did an Old Testament passage when he was in seminary. And uh, when it was all over, the profs walked by and handed you their critique sheets. That's intimidating, believe me. <laughs> anyway, handing him the, the critique sheet, and he said he opened it up, and it said just these words. You missed the whole point of the passage. <laughs> he said, I promised I would never miss the point of the passage again. <laughs> but at any rate, that's Dr. Feinberg. Anyway, Dr. Feinberg wrote this. Amos is charging Israel with observing the rituals of the Mosaic law and at the same time that they were following idols without true faith. That's, that's what he wrote in his commentary on, on Amos. To obey is better than sacrifices and to heed than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two, And he goes on, and he says, you prepared a body for me. And it points, this points to the incarnation. This is what Christ is saying. You prepared, God, you prepared for me a body. This is talking to the incarnation. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, found in the fashion of a man. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that he might receive, so that they might, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And, be, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then heirs of God. That's, that's, the, that's the idea here. This is what he's talking about, uh, that in the fullness of time, Christ came and it per- in other words, we could say at precisely the right moment in which God wanted it to happen, it happened. That's, that's what he's saying here. Uh, and then verse 6, he, go, he goes on and he says, I have no pleasure, further, further expressing God's pleasure, uh, displeasure with their ritual sacrifice that wasn't accompanied by faith and, and, and had no repentance involved in it. It was just a rote ritual is the idea here. Psalms 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O oh God, these the, you, the, you will not despise. Isaiah 1.11 and 15-18, you can cross-reference that with that. And then verse 7, he returns back to, uh, back to 5 and 6, talking about them in relationship to them. He says, then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the book of the scroll. The book of the scroll, for example, in Isaiah, 
chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. It talks about the coming of Messiah. That's the whole, the whole idea there. There are a number of other Old Testament passages. That's the only one I, I wrote down. And then he, and he quotes from, from Psalms 40, 74, about he has come to do the will of God. Mark 14, 36, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this from me, speaking of the crucifixion. Remove this from me, yet not what I will, but your will. The idea is that's what Christ came to do. He came to pay the price, to be the sacrifice, and he came to do it in the full will of God. And the verses 9 and 10 then become a commentary on on verses uh, verses 6 through 8. He says, when he said this above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Uh, those are offered according to law. And that's pretty much the whole of the, of the Levitical sacrifice system that he's talking about here. You can throw in anything else, that all the little details that went with it, but that's the major overview of it. He says, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Basically, what he's saying here is, I came to replace the contract God made with you. I came to update it, if you will, to rewrite it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in contracts, but there are times you renegotiate a contract. And when you renegotiate a contract, what happens to the old contract? It becomes null and void. It goes away. That's what God did. He made a contract originally called the Old Covenant. Covenant just means in our could be translated in our modern-day English contract. We don't like to use that. It doesn't sound very religious. But, but that's all what it was. It was a contract. And he says, that contract needs to be updated. It needs to be improved. And he says, so here's the new contract. And he signed it in Christ's blood. And when he did, the old contract went away. It was no longer valid. It was now invalid. It was obsolete. In fact, some of the commentators, that's how they refer to the Old, Testament, the Old Covenant, obsolete and ineffective. It says it's, it's, it's done. It's a new contract. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying these verses mean. God updated the contract. He made a new one, a better one, a more all-encompassing one, one that was able to save once and for all. Because he's going to go on and say, and by, that will, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Now, I suspect most of you were here last week. Unfortunately, I had to miss a week. If I hadn't missed a week, I would have been right in line with everything that was going on last week about sanctification. Because... That's what they talked about in every message last week. Well, now we're going to. <laughs> kind, of, kind of be redundant, probably. But at any rate, at any rate uh, he says, he says we'll sanctify the body of Jesus once and for all. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us, For this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? That you be sanctified. That's what, that's what 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says. For the will of God... Your sanctification. Sanctify simply means to make holy. Uh, When it's applied to human beings, 
<clears throat> it needs to be set apart for God and to be set apart for God's purposes. Second Timothy, Second uh, Timothy one, Second <clears throat> Timothy one nine, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, because but because of His own purposes and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God, by His own choice, by His own purposes, saved us. That's the point, and wants us to be made holy. Incidentally, it's the word that we get saint from. So there aren't a special class of people who are saints. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. Bottom line, period. Incidentally, in sanctifying you, in the act of Christ's sacrifice, which this is talking about positional sanctification. We talked about the three different forms of sanctification last week. This is talking about positional sanctification. It means that the moment you were saved, you were positionally holy before God. That's what it means. Incidentally, that fulfills 1 Peter 1.6, where God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. You don't become holy in your actions. God made you that way by his action. That's what this is saying. Positionally, that's where you are today. Now, in this life, we're under progressive sanctification. We're according to 1 Corinthians, we're being changed from glory, uh, 2 Corinthians, from glory unto glory. The Greek verb is a perfect participle with a, with, a, uh, with a finite verb. It's the strongest way to show that the believer's continuing. It, it, it's probably the strongest way that language can, um, can be used to say you're saved now and forever. It, it's a guarantee of your salvation. That's what this, 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 this means. It's a permanent, continuing salvation. The author of the uh, uh, the offer of the body of Jesus Christ was once and for all sanctified. Those who place their faith in Him. Ten uh, ten ten points to our 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 sanctification as well, but it's going to do it from a little different angle. It's a different verb that's included with it, but here it is a permanent, continuing act. You are sanctified. In verses 11 through 18, we're going to call this the uh, perfect sacrifice offered by Christ. So in verse 11, he says this, For every, pri- uh, every, high pr- every priest stands daily at his, service, uh, at his service, offering repeatedly the same fr- sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ... Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God. I'm going to stop there for a minute because what I want to do here is is just talk about, once again, we have a series of contrasts. I want to talk about the contrasts here. We've been over these before. This is kind of repetitive, but it's important to understand this. Uh, is is what it's saying here is it's it's comparing the work of the Old Testament high high priest with the work of Christ as high priest. And first of all, it says 
it, it speaks here of the priest standing daily at service and offering repeatedly. So the first thing we see is it has many priests. In the Old Testament, there was a high priest, and he had hundreds of, of, of fellow Levites who were priests who served in the temple. And that's, that's the first, first contrast. There were many priests. In Christ, there is one and only one. Secondly, the high, priest, the high priest in particular, and all the other priests who served in the temple, they were standing. There were no chairs in the furniture of the temple. There was no place to sit down. Uh, they stood. In contrast, Christ is currently seated at the right hand of God. His work is finished. He's seated. Thirdly, the offerings of the Old Testament priest were repeated often, over and over again. It's most of the time in, in Hebrews he's referring to the Day of Atonement, which was annual. But there were continual priests going, or, or uh, sacrifices going on. And he's saying that the sacrifices were repeated over and over and over. It says of Christ, it was once and for all. It was never to be repeated it was done one time. It, and that leads us to fourthly, because of that, it's obvious then that the Old Testament system was ineffective. It couldn't save. Whereas the New Covenant was effective. It completely removed sin. The Old Testament priests stood because their work was never done. You know, it was just never done. Franz Delage wrote in his commentary on, on Hebrews, he said, The priest of the Old Testament stood timidly and uneasy in the holy place, anxiously performing his awful service, uh, his awful service there, and hastening to depart when the service was done, as from a place where he had no free access and could never feel at home. Whereas Christ sits down in the everlasting rest and blessedness at the right hand of majesty in the Holy of Holies, his work accomplished, and he awaits his reward. That's the picture of this contrast. You understand the Old Testament priest, when he entered the Holy of Holies, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he didn't know if he was coming out. Because if he had done anything wrong, he was dead. He was, that's what he's talking about. It was uneasy and anxious, and he wanted out of there as fast as he could. In fact, as Josephus says, they tied a rope around his foot to drag him out just in case, because nobody could go in and get him. That's the way the system worked. But Christ is seated at the right hand of God, waiting his reward. Incidentally, that's you and me. Apparently, they still still had a, a certain amount of fear about it. Text that really doesn't say. You'd have to read in one way or the other. But uh, um, uh, once the Shekinah glory left, 
I can't answer that completely, but I would I would think they did. They still went through all the ritual and all the program. They didn't stay in there. They went in, did what they had to do, and they got out. They still stood. They didn't they didn't change the system any. But the problem was they thought the ritual saved them. So as a as a result, yeah, they probably still had that that innate uh, um, fear uh, of uh, of being of being in there. That's what I would assume. Well, that was a, this crucifixion. That wasn't last. No, he was talking about when the Shekinah glory left the temple in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel. Yikabod. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay, 13. 13 and 14. And uh, we're going to become bringing this, to, bringing this to the end here. He says, And the priest standing daily at, at uh, thir- oh, no, 13. Uh, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool. Jesus is at the right hand of God. We'll pick this back up again. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made, should made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected all times those who are being sanctified. So here he, he goes on and he says, he, he refers to Psalms 110.1, where he talks about, he talks about the fact that, uh, uh, that he's waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool. Now, this is kind of an interesting deal. You might say, well, who are his enemies? Well, Hebrews 2.4 says that uh, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, the devil. That was just one of his enemies, certainly. Uh, and it says he's already destroyed him. That's an accomplished fact. Uh, Colossians 2.14 through... 15 says that he destroyed rulers and authorities, which is generally accepted to mean uh, fallen angels, demonic powers. But it also has the implication then uh, from what we know of Scripture that it would include earthly rulers under their influence. So it would be evil men as well. He's already destroyed that. His salvation, his sacrifice destroyed all that, all of that kind of thing. So he destroyed, he destroyed the realm of Satan is the idea in his sacrifice. Philippians 2.5 says what he's waiting for is that day when they all bow at his feet and declare him Lord and King. According to 2.10. And then, of course, there's 1 Corinthians 15.26, where it tells us, that he destroyed our greatest enemy, death. The last enemy, death. By the offering made by Christ, the one time he perfected, uh, bringing us into sanctification. Here, here again, he talks about the idea of sanctification. Those who are being sanctified. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and once again, it's pos- positional but it has a little more, it has a little different flavor to it this time. Um, the other one was in the perfect tense, meaning it's a done deal, finished, accomplished, never to be repeated. This one's in the, in the present passive, which gives, an in, uh, which gives the emphasis on the character of God's people. Uh, the idea is, is, is Christ's sacrifice uh, becomes timeless for mankind, and man's uh, man is eternally God's holy people. It considers it kind of a process, but it's a done deal. It's kind of the way this one is putting it together. Uh, the conscience has been clean from guilt, uh, made fit to approach God as an acceptable worshiper, worshiper, 
being brought into perfect relationship to God. That's the idea uh, behind the way this part of sanctification is being phrased. In other words, this is what God did. He cleansed us. He made us fit to approach him. And he brought us into a perfect relationship with him. That's what the sanctification there has, 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 has reference to. It has to do with the timeless character of God and, and, and his people being before him. Um, well, it doesn't, the sanctification doesn't apply to God. It applies to his people. Don't, don't misunderstand me there. Uh, the emphasis is on the character of God's people. Here is the idea as a holy people. And then verse 15 through 18. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying this. And we're going to, we'll look at that in just a minute, but I want to make a point here. What the author is doing right here, I mean, the words that he's about to read, Jeremiah wrote. He's giving us the true author. He says, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the inspiration of Scripture here. He is saying, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures given by God. That's who he's calling on to testify. He's saying, my witness is the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying here. And, and he's making that very clear. This is a, this is a clear uh, passage referring to the high view of the Word of God as being exactly that, the Word of God. And he says, he says, And the Holy Spirit also bearing witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their heart and write it on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. So what he's saying here is he's saying the Holy Spirit himself has declared this. He bears witness to this reality. Excuse me. And, and this is Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. The new covenant takes the law of God. It takes the word of God, in other words. It takes, it takes, it takes that covenant and it puts it into our hearts and our minds. It makes it not an external law that we are to obey. It makes it an internalized law that is a part of us. That's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying it's, it's in our hearts. He's, by doing this, we now have the power to obey it. That's, that's, that's the idea here. The will and the power to obey because it's in our hearts and our minds. It's, it's become a part of us. It's intrinsic with us. It's a part of our very being is what he is saying. That's what the new contract is. The old contract was it was external. Do these things. This, this contract says it's now internal. It's part of you. It's a reality of who you are. It's very, it's very much a part of you. And secondly, secondly, he says, your sins... Under this new contract, under this once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, under this contract, your sins, your sins, are uh, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In other words, he says this, not only are you forgiven, it's forgotten. 
Sin is removed and it's forgotten. It's not going to be brought back up. You know, we as human beings, and I'm sure you've all experienced this, when uh, in our relationships with others, uh, whenever uh, somebody uh, does something we don't like, uh, we instantly bring up all the other things they've ever done that they don't, we didn't like. You know, that's, that's what happens. And we, we go through the litany of all these things. This text says, God doesn't do that. God doesn't bring up your past. It's done. That's what it says. He assures us that our sins are eternally blotted out and never brought up again. And then he goes on and he goes on and he says that where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He says, if your sins have been forgiven... And God isn't going to bring them up again. Why would we need an offering? It's been presented. It's been accepted. It's been applied. Understand that. You are forgiven. You have been made, you have been sanctified as God's holy people and given access to Him. And He's not going to say, hey, remember when you did that? That's not going to happen. That's done. It's done away with. You're his child, as it said here, an heir and joint heir with Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce, Bruce <coughs> excuse me, uh, wrote this on, on this verse. He said this, in Hebrews 8, the oracle of Jeremiah, if you remember back, we saw this same passage in Jeremiah 8. Uh, the oracle of Jeremiah 31, uh, 31, 31 through 34 was, clo- was quoted in order to prove the obsolescence of the old economy. Now it's a quoted again in order to establish the permanence of the, of the, era, of per- of the era of perfection inaugurated under the new covenant. God has spoken in the Son, and He has no word to speak beyond Him. Revelation 1.1 1, 1 begins by saying the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 2.21 and 18 gives the warning, don't add and don't take away. The word is complete. God has spoken. Any comments or questions this morning? Let's pray. Father, our God, we, we give you thanks this morning. We thank you for the, for the magnitude of your salvation that we have only scratched the surface of this morning. Uh, but the fact that in Christ we have been made holy and acceptable before you. We have entrance to you. We have access to the very throne room of God. And that you hear us and you receive us and you receive us in the beloved. And we, we, we give you praise and thanksgiving for that. And we thank you, Lord, that in that you removed our sin and it's never to be brought up again. And may we live lives that emulate that before a lost and dying world. May they see Christ in us today and every day until you come. For we thank you and we praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.